Again to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Lord willing, I plan to finish chapter 12 this evening, and next week we aim to dive into chapter 13. The epistle of Hebrews is a letter from a faithful pastor who had been there but no longer or for the time being was not with them. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 19, he says, pray that I can return to you basically as soon as possible. But in the meantime, he's appealing to these Hebrew Christians to persevere in their faith, not to turn aside, not to give in to the pressure of their Jewish friends and family members to return to the fold of Judaism. And his favorite device he uses over and over throughout the, 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 the epistle is contrast. The contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The contrast between angels and Jesus. The contrast between the priesthood of Aaron or Levi and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Between what the Jews had in Moses and what you and I as believers in Christ have in Jesus Christ. And he sets before us the promises that are ours in the New Covenant. That we have a confidence in the finished work of the Lord Jesus and we can approach the throne of grace with this confidence. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have Jesus' faithful intercession that he's able to help us when we're tempted or in our weakness. We have present comfort, grace, mercy in time of need. We have the promise and the assurance that Jesus is that mediator of a new covenant. And we have the promise of an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us. He tells us in chapter 6, verse 12, that we're to emulate the faith of those saints who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And then in chapter 11, he reminds me of the testimony of these faithful servants who manifested faith and patience and now have inherited these promises. And he turns from that and he says, now you, chapter 12, you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses I've just talked about. Now you run with endurance the race that's marked out for you, a race that is run by faith with your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. And then for the rest of the chapter, he, he, he unpacks what that actually looks like, what that means, that we trust him in all things. And when he disciplines us, we recognize that he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness, that we're to strive for peace with all. We're to strive for holiness without which no one will see God. He reminds us in verses 18 and following this contrast between Sinai and Mount Zion, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And his description of, the, of, of Mount Zion, and we're going to read this in just a moment to refresh our memories, but he talks about it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We, we, these are blessings of ours in the New Covenant. The, the, we have these innumerable angels in festal gathering. We have the assembly of the firstborn enthroned in heaven. It says, we've come to God, the judge of all. We've come to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and we have a blood, a, a sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. So at this point, with, with, with all these vast privileges that are ours as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, privileges in the new covenant, he, he calls us to faith and obedience. When we get to chapter 13, we're going to see very specific applications, very specific instructions, almost rapid fire of how we ought to live. But before he does that, he gives basically this final exhortation of what it means to live by faith, how we are to respond to the grace of God, the responses of faith, the appropriate responses to the promises of God given to us in the new covenant. 
So please follow as I read. I'm actually going to begin in verse 18, but our message tonight will begin in verse 25. So in verse 18, Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and doom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And now our message for tonight begins here. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. My title is The Responses of Faith, and there are three. It's a very simple outline, very easy. I think you can remember it, even if you don't write it down. First of all is obedience, in verse 25. The second one is gratitude, in verse 28. And the third is worship in verse 28 also. Obedience, gratitude, and worship. That is going to summarize what we're going to look at this morning as appropriate responses of those who are trusting in the Lord and who've received the blessings of the new covenant. Well, first of all, let's talk about obedience. It says that, uh, verse 25, God is the one who's speaking. See to it, you do not refuse the one who's speaking. That's God. And the focus of the verb here is on the act of speaking. There are two verbs that, that, that indicate speaking. One, the focus is on the message given. The focus is on the words spoken. But here, the focus is on the actual act of speaking, the one who is speaking. And the tense indicates that he's continually speaking. It's not simply God spoke at one point, but he continues to speak. Now, that doesn't mean at all that God is giving new revelation. We don't believe that. We believe that new revelation ceased when the canon was completed. And the New Testament is the final word. And yet, through his word, he continues to speak to us. And he continues. He is still speaking. And his word is living, and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I would add here that there's a sense in which God, I don't even want to say speaks. I want to be very careful here. But there are times that you just, you sense God is inviting you or God is impressing on your heart to serve or to speak certain words or to, to give or to, to, in certain ways. And, and, and Scripture says we're not to quench the Spirit. And that doesn't mean, uh, that doesn't mean any, any uh, impression that you get is immediately something you're supposed to do. You're also supposed to test the spirits, right? But there are times when there's something that, that just, it's, it's impressive on your heart. And, and in many cases, it's, come to me. Come, come cast your cares on me. Come spend time with me. And he says, don't refuse God when he speaks to you that way. 
Yeah, we want to be real careful. We are cessationists. We don't believe in continuing revelation, but we don't want to eliminate all of the mystery from the Christian life. There is a, dy- a dynamic communication, and I, I don't want to go further than that because I don't want to, don't want to step into uh, 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 false teaching that we are supposed to warn to stay against in Hebrews six thirteen. But there is a sense in which the tugging, the prompting of the Lord comes to us, and we have to test it. It might just be what you had for supper last night, but in many cases, it really is of the Lord. And in those cases, we test the spirits, but we don't refuse Him who is speaking. But the emphasis here is not so much that. It's that God is warning us from heaven. Again, the context is one of warning. Do not refuse. Do not break off from running the race that is marked out before you. And he's setting before you Mount Zion and Mount uh, Sinai. Do you really want to return to Mount Sinai? At Sinai, God warned the children of Israel. He warned them on earth. But from Mount Zion, we read that God warns us from heaven, and he continues to do so. And again, the activity, the emphasis is on the activity of God, that warning, that speaking. The content, though, is on the warning. That you don't grow careless, you don't turn away, you don't lose heart, you don't wander away from the living God. Now, we have these warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 2, verse 3, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In Hebrews 6, uh, we have this warning. If you have tasted the heavenly gift, you uh, uh, you have experienced something of the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking about how close an unbeliever can become to true conversion without having it. And then ultimately abandoning the faith, like Judas Iscariot did. He was never a believer, and yet he sure looked like one by all human outward estimation. He warns us against such apostasy. It's a grave danger that we dare not take lightly. Now, in the previous verses, we read that one of the ways that God speaks to us today is through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The reality is that the gospel contains the promise of life for everyone who believes. Hear me, kids, adults, if you're not really a Christian, the blood of Jesus speaks to you and says, come. The Lord Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. His word holds this forth, this continuing invitation, but it's also a warning. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? So the gospel contains a promise of life for all who believe, but also a promise of judgment for those who refuse. Do not refuse him who is speaking. That's the command. See that you do not refuse him. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not regard him. It's essential that we listen to his word, that we pay special attention to his warnings. But the emphasis here is do not refuse him who is speaking. If you fail to heed his warnings... If you fail to obey his commands, that's a problem. It's a serious problem, but first and foremost, do not refuse him who speaks. The new covenant is not about keeping the law per se. Jesus kept the law in our place. The new covenant is about a relationship, a trusting in the Lord Jesus, that he kept the law in your place, and he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law in his death, in his resurrection, his priestly intercession for us even now. And he says, do not refuse him 
who speaks. And the, the, again, little grammar here, the tense of the verb there is not, do not continue to refuse him. It's like, do not even begin to refuse him. It's not saying you're already doing this. It's like, stop refusing him. It's don't even begin to refuse him. Okay? If you want to know, where'd you get that from? I'll tell you later. But, but there is that temptation to turn away from Christ, to refuse him who is speaking. And he says, don't do that. Kids, do mom and dad ever speak to you? And sometimes you simply don't pay attention to them. I didn't hear you. They were standing right there speaking to you, but you were so busy doing what you wanted to do, you did not even listen. Now, what does the fifth commandment tell you that you and I are supposed to do? We're to what? Anybody know? Honor our iPad. No, our father and our mother. Not be distracted by other things, right? Honor father and mother. So whatever you do, when mom and dad start to speak, what should you do to honor them? You should give them your undivided attention. That's what they deserve. Do not refuse to listen to them. Do not uh, give them a deaf ear. Pay attention. And then do what they say. Do not refuse the one speaking to you, whether that's mom or whether that's dad. Now, you might say, you know what? I don't like what my mom and dad are telling me to do. Does that give you the right to turn a deaf ear to them? Because as I look at my Bible, it says you to obey them. You're to submit to their authority. And as we, we talked about last year, sub, last week, submission doesn't always mean agreement. Sometimes we have to submit to what we don't particularly enjoy. We have to submit when we don't particularly understand or agree. If, if, if it's only when we agree and only think it's good, here, son, eat this ice cream. Do I have to? Of course not, right? That wouldn't happen. But the difficult obedience that you don't particularly want to do, that's the test of your true respect and your true submission. Do you listen? Do you pay attention? Or do you refuse? See, when you refuse your parents, that's disobedience not only against them, but first and foremost, it's disobedience to the Lord because he's the one who gave you that mom and that dad. He's the one who told you that you are to obey them and respect their authority. So see to it that you do not refuse mom or dad when they speak. And when mom and dad warn you of some danger, how many times has your mom and dad told you, be careful, don't do this particular thing? And you go, I know that. I don't need you to tell. And you kind of think you know better than they do. Now, if you're four or five, you might not be there yet. But if you're 10 or 12, 14 or 16, <laughs> come on, man, I got this. How many people, when you first start driving, listen carefully to mom and dad's instructions and you never go against it when mom and dad aren't even in the car? couple of hands. Good. But how many of you are like, nobody's looking. I can drive any way I want. I don't need to heed their warnings. Really? Seriously? And then something terrible happens, and there's something inside you that doesn't want to admit that mom and dad were right, and you wish you'd listened. We've all experienced something like that, right? Mom and dad know what they're talking about, and we're called to listen do not refuse. And that's what God is saying. Do not refuse the one who's speaking in our relationship with our Lord. When God speaks, he knows what he's talking about. Regardless what you may think, you don't know better than God does. And neither do I. That was the message that Satan gave to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember? Uh, can, did God say you could eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, yeah, we can, anyone but one. We, we can't eat of that one. We're not supposed to even touch it. And she sort of went beyond what God said. Because he never said, don't touch that tree. 
And Satan said, you won't really die. And he tries to convince Eve that she knows better than God. God is being stingy. He doesn't want you to enjoy what he enjoys. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. And then you'll be like him. And because she fell for that temptation to believe that she knew better than God, sin and death entered into the whole world. We do not know better than God. The first step into sin and rebellion is, did God really say? Now, there are times that God's instructions are difficult. Obedience is difficult. And here we have the Hebrews believers who are being called to difficult obedience, to deny themselves, take up their cross, follow Jesus, when all this societal and family pressure was saying, turn back and come back to the fold. There's a price to pay that Jesus calls bearing his cross. But the writer here enforces his argument, his admonition, with a compelling argument. It's an argument, uh, technically speaking, from the lesser to the greater. If you've ever been involved in debate, you know there are different types of arguments. Well, this is the lesser to the greater, all right? And he says here, See that you don't refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He appeals to Sinai, that God's voice shook the earth. And it was terrifying. The people were filled with awe. And yet, what we read here is that's basically the lesser. Now, he, he, he's actually quoting from the prophet Haggai. And he's appealing not just to the first time God appeared at Sinai, but the second time, which is actually the second coming of the Lord Jesus. In Haggai chapter 2, we read, For thus says the Lord God of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God is saying here, at the return of Messiah, the consummation of all things, heaven and earth will be shaken. Let's walk through this argument briefly, if we can. At Sinai, God's voice shook the earth, and it was terrifying. But God has now promised that once more he will shake things up, as it were. But it's going to be different, because he's going to shake heaven and earth, all nations. And this shaking is going to result in the removal of every temporal authority, every temporal treasure, Every temporal human institution, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The things that have been made will be overturned. The things that are eternal, that cannot be shaken, the new heaven and the new earth, those things will last forever. That's the contrast. The original Shaking, the later shaking. <clears throat> the things in heaven, or things on earth, wouldn't last anyway. The things that will never, ever be shaken. And the argument here is those who witnessed this first shaking, they still rebelled. They refused him who warned them from the mountain in spite of the fact that they were overwhelmed with terror, as it were, at the shaking of that mountain. And because they rebelled, they did not escape. They experienced the judgment of God. Every adult, 20 years and older, who was part of that generation, except for Caleb and Joshua, everyone died in the, in the wilderness. 
and did not have the privilege of entering into the promised land. That's the lesser condition. If they did not escape, who experienced that lesser shaking? If this is so, much less will we escape if we reject him who speaks from heavens. Now, I said from lesser to greater, and then he says much less. But it's like, really, how much more will we not escape at this greater revelation of the power and the authority of God? How much more will refusing this greater warning result in judgment? He calls us to take that seriously. Pay attention. Listen up. Do not refuse him who speaks. Put your faith and trust and hope entirely in him and in no other. That's the first response of faith that we find here in this text. Secondly, we're to be grateful. A response of gratitude. Verse 28, we read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Gratitude. Under the old covenant, the children of Israel had been set free from slavery. Now think about this for a moment. They received these tremendous blessings of the promised land, a land that flowed with milk and honey. And this, this, this land, they had their own parcel, their own inheritance that was theirs that could be passed down from generation to generation. <coughs> but it was a kingdom that did not last. They rebelled and they were taken into captivity and the land was ransacked. They were returned for a while, but then they rejected God's Messiah and it was ransacked once again. And the new covenant essentially was made irrelevant. The temple was gone. The priesthood was gone. The sacrifices ceased for all time. The blessings of the old covenant essentially came to an end. But in the new covenant, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, uh, Peter writes, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, priesthood a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are part of this holy nation, a priesthood of nation, a, 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 a nation of priests. In Revelation chapter 5, this new song that was sung in heaven to the Lord Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Christian, hear me. You and I are part of a kingdom a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and we will reign there. We're enlisted as priests to serve our God, not priests to offer sacrifices for atonement. Jesus took care of that, and that is never to be repeated. But priests to serve God in worship and in praise. We're actually part of that kingdom now, but there's more to come. It's an eternal kingdom, one that will never be shaken. We're to be grateful. It's interesting. That it's sad, really. It's tragic. The children of Israel were not grateful. God, remember, they had de- he had delivered them from bondage. They were, they were under this oppressive slavery, and Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, forget it. Who is this God? I don't want to listen to him. What did I have to do with him? And so God sent 10 crushing plagues that brought Pharaoh to his knees and brought Egypt to his knees. And the Egyptians, at the end, were throwing their treasures, their gold and their silver the jewel, and their jewels at the Israelites and saying, please just leave. 
He delivered them when Pharaoh pursued them once again. He parted the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. And then the water covered over Pharaoh and destroyed him and his entire army. By day, he led them with a pillar of cloud. By night, he led them with a pillar of fire, demonstrating for them his constant presence and provision and protection. He provided fresh water for them out of a rock. He provided them with manna from heaven. And for 40 years, they walked through the desert and their shoes never wore out. That's amazing. How many of you have had to buy a new pair of shoes at some point? Because you're always just wore out. Now, some of us, you, you, you're growing and you, get, you know, grew them. But, but once we stop growing, we just wear them out eventually. Forty years, they walked through the desert or through the wilderness, and their shoes never wore out. He had these daily, visible reminders of God's presence, of his protection, of his provision. He appeared at Mo, to Moses at Mount Sinai. He... he, he Revealed himself and revealed his law and entered into a covenant with them. He called them his distinct people, chosen from all the peoples of the earth. He established his priesthood, this sacrificial system, to deal with their sins against him. That they might have real and vital fellowship. So there are all manners in the old covenant of God's grace and God's kindness. But over and over, they grumbled. Over and over they grumbled against Moses and they grumbled also against God. Let's be honest for a minute. Because it's real easy to look at this and go, I wouldn't do that if I were them. What was their problem? Just think about it. Life in the wilderness was not easy. Any of you ever spent an extended amount of time on a backpacking trip? That's much more convenient than what they had. You've got all kinds of technology they didn't have access to. They lived in tents with about a million of their closest neighbors. There were no, there's no privacy. There are no bathrooms, no established homes, no heating or air conditioning, no running water. There was, sometimes there was no water at all. There were none of the comforts that you and I take for granted. They had manna every day, and at first when manna came down, they were amazed, they were grateful. God has provided for us, but over time, they got tired of eating the same thing every day. And they began to grumble and complain. They said, you know, back in Egypt, we ate fish that cost us nothing, along with leeks and onions and garlic and other, we had a great diet. Uh, they f- this discontentment kind of colored their thinking. They forgot about the, oh yeah, the, the, the slavery part and the, the killing our firstborn sons part. They forgot about that, didn't they? Because their bellies were craving better flavors. Their their discontented hearts ask, what have you done for me lately? You ever had that attitude toward God? Okay, I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. He lived a perfect life. He died in my place. He took all my sins upon himself. He said, it's finished. He died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. I know that one day... He did this amazing work of grace in my heart. He showed me my sin, and he showed me the solution to my sin in Jesus, and he gave me a new heart, and I I was converted, and my life changed. And he put a promise of heaven for me in the future that one day all sorrow will be eliminated. No more more tears, no more uh, death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things is going to pass away. I know those things happened in the past. I know those things will be happening in the future. but, but, But God, what have you done for me lately? Have you ever actually, you wouldn't say that, but have you ever sort of had that attitude? It's sort of like these glorious truths, this sort of 
Ah, they've just gotten old. I need something new and fresh. My gratitude is wearing a little thin. We're all too prone to forget, just like the children of Israel did. You think, man, they saw the Red Sea part, and they see a cloud of pillar uh, of, of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night, and they know it was God who did that. How could they forget? Well, same way you and I forget. Well, we have our Bibles here telling us all the wondrous things God is and what He has done for us. Don't be like the forgetful Israelites and grumble, but be grateful. Look back at the cross, all that Christ has done for you. Look back at your own conversion and, and, and those, the freshness of God at work in you and those daily reminders of grace throughout your life, those provisions that came at special times and those provisions that just came at regular times. Look to the glorious promise in heaven that the glory of heaven will far outweigh any present sorrow or suffering you may endure. And the assurance, you have this kingdom, an unshakable kingdom. And there's, again, there's this sense that we have the kingdom right now. We, are, we have eternal life. We're part of the kingdom now. But there's another sense in which it's to come. It's that already and not yet that we talk about from time to time, which is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if you're a Christian, if you are in Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us over and over, we have this confidence not only to enter the holy place, not only to come boldly before the throne of grace in our prayer lives, but a confidence that when that day comes, we will be safe with our Savior in glory. And that glory is infinitely greater than anything this world could ever offer or any sorrows this world could ever inflict upon you. We finished our service this morning singing, Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at his table, Jesus, thank you. Are we living with a fresh sense that his blood has washed away our sins and we're no longer his enemies? We're seated at his table. The commentator Richard Brooks said, In view of God's, all God's mercies, Upon the recollection of all of God's promises and in light of all of God's providences, which has brought us safely all the way from the city of destruction to the celestial city, how can any saved sinner be less than grateful? In view of his mercies, his promises and providences, how can we not be grateful? But like the children of Israel, we're prone to forget. So we need this reminder, be grateful who God is, and for what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. And the greatest expression of gratitude is what? Worship. So we come to the third of these three responses of faith, obedience, gratitude, and now worship. Verse 28, once again, it says that we are to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hear me, worship is the inevitable overflow of a grateful heart. This worship that he's speaking of here is not limited to corporate worship, what we're doing right now, what we did here together this, this morning. It's, it's the life of worship and service and adoration to our Lord. It's, it's, it's a life of devotion to him. You know, we worship whatever we are most, 
don't want to say excited about, whatever has a, the, the greatest grip on our hearts, whatever we love most deeply, that's what we worship. And the Lord Jesus said that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There should be no rival. I worship God 80%, but 20% I'm reserved for other things. Our worship is his exclusively. Now, we can have great affection for our family members and other loved ones, and you can have great enjoyment in hobbies and work and so forth, but our worship, what we devote our hearts and lives to, is for God alone. And here we have some essential qualities for this worship, which is God's alone. First of all, we're to offer acceptable worship. Now, you ought to ask, what constitutes acceptable worship? That was the question of the woman of the well, right? Remember, Jesus talks about about God, and, 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 and she immediately goes, well, you know, you know, our fathers worship in Gerizim, your fathers worship in Jerusalem, which is right. She wants to know about the, the, the place, and the, she wants to, to know about the process, the procedure. As Reformed Baptists, it's really easy for us to jump immediately to the regulative principle and talk about the forms or the elements that God has ordained for our worship. And there's seven. Just to remind you, first of all, reading the Word, preaching and listening to the Word, singing, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with joy in our hearts. Uh, prayer with thanksgiving, giving tithes and offerings, and then observance of the ordinances or sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's table. Those are the elements God has given us for, for worship, public corporate worship, and they're sufficient. We don't need to become innovative and add new stuff. We can be, uh, there's variety in how we sing. There's variety in what you sit on while we preach and what we preach behind and so forth. But these are the elements that God has given to us. But in this context, it's not, the, the elements is not the point. Jesus says to the woman of the well, God is a spirit, and you, you shall worship God in spirit and in truth. And the first thing before we talk about how we worship is the heart attitude we bring to the worship of God. And that heart attitude extends to how we Make use of those elements. And the heart attitude, he, he summarizes with two words here. One is with reverence. Again, Brooks uh, gave some very helpful comments here. He, he defines gratitude as a due sense, and I like that word, due sense, of thankfulness for all God's kindness and love toward us that are all undeserved. I don't deserve his goodness and kindness, and so he deserves a thankful heart, okay? That's how he defines gratitude. He says reverence is a due sense, once again, of all the, of the holiness and majesty of God leading us to bow before him in adoration. That's probably as good a definition as you'll find. Uh, it's, it's a recognition that God deserves this reverence from us, this, this sense of his holiness and his majesty when we come into his, care, his presence. We don't come in carelessly, casually. We don't come in flippant or distracted. We come in to the worship of God with a heart focused on him. Now, again, this is not just about corporate worship. This is about a life of worship. Our lives ought to be characterized by reverence. And that doesn't mean in every context we look like we just bit a lemon, okay? It's not that at all. But there should be a reverence for who God is and how we speak of him. It leads us to bow in adoration, to give careful attention to the one who speaks as well as to what he says, his words and his warnings, we listen reverently, but also with awe, with reverence and with awe. And again, Brooks, he defines it this way. He says, it's a due sense of wonder and amazement 
at the presence of God, both because of who he is in himself and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Again, this due sense, what is appropriate to who God is and what he's done for us? Nothing less than wonder and amazement. So our our worship should never be sleepy or sloppy or slovenly. Our worship should not be half-hearted. Our hearts should be engaged with who God is. Our spirit's enlivened by a sense of what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus. We began our service tonight singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of, uh, of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His streams of mercy do, in fact, call for songs of loudest praise. But sometimes our hearts aren't tuned up to do that. And so we say, God, come, tune my heart to sing your grace. It's, it's good, and it's right to ask God to tune our hearts to sing his grace, isn't it? But there's a sense that you and I need to lay hold of our hearts ourselves, lay hold of our affections. One of the Puritans defined worship is uh, taking all your affections and pitching them upon God. I like that definition, pitching all your affections on the Lord. Lay hold of what you love, your appetites and everything else, and devote it to the Lord. Turn your attention away from distractions. Put aside those other influences that compete for your focus for your affections. When I first wrote this, I, I, I actually wrote, set aside the concerns for this life. But they actually, in our worship, we cast our cares upon him. We don't set them aside. We give them to him and entrust him with them. We focus the attention of our hearts on who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ with such focus and such, such care and such internalizing is, is, is in meditating that it produces this due sense of gratitude and of reverence and even of awe. And the writer gives us a powerful reason why we ought to do that. He says, because our God is a consuming fire. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is uh, preparing the children of Israel to enter into the promised land. Remember Exodus, we received the Ten Commandments, the law. Deutero means second Namas means law. Deuteronomy is the second statement of the law. It's the restatement to that next generation right before they went into the promised land where he reminds them of God's law. He reminds them of his covenant. He reminds them this is what you need to do and believe and practice when you enter into the promised land. And one of the things he says in Deuteronomy 4 is stay away from idols. Do not carve images for yourselves, but rather... You must fear the Lord, for our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And you think of Nadab and Abihu for a moment. Pastor Mark mentioned this week, he preached on it a few weeks ago. They were priests to the Lord, but they they presented before his altar unauthorized fire. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. It's often been called strange fire. But they violated God's clear direction for worship. However they did, we don't know. But he, it says that fire from the Lord consumed them and they died before the Lord. God is a consuming fire. The fire and the smoke that descended upon Mount Sinai was terrifying. The fire that consumed Nadab and Abihu was terrifying. And so as the children of Israel are about to enter the promised land, Moses reminds them of this terrifying reality. God is not to be trifled with. His judgment is terrifying. He is a consuming fire. Now, hear me, Christian. 
His judgment should hold no terror for the child of God who's trusting in Jesus Christ. But if you're flirting with departing from the faith and going anywhere else, the reality of these are consuming fire should shake you to your core. His holiness and his majesty should inspire in us reverence and awe that lead to sincere and acceptable worship that is heart-engaging and even life-transforming. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to start chapter 13. And it's interesting as you read, it's just almost rapid-fire instructions, things like let brotherly love continue and uh, show hospitality to strangers. Remember those in prison and those who are mistreated for the gospel. Hold marriage in honor and in purity. Keep your life free from the love of money, but be content with what you have. Remember your leaders who introduced you to the gospel. Be on guard against false teaching and, and so on. It's kind of one right after the other. Very specific instructions, but here he is preparing us by saying, engage your heart and mind that you do not refuse him who speaks, that you're grateful, that you worship in reverence and all, reverence and all, then your heart will be inclined and your will will be enabled to do the things we're getting ready to talk about. See, you can't obey your way into the kingdom. You cannot obey enough to gain God's favor. But if you realize the wonder of his grace that gives you favor that you don't deserve, obedience becomes attractive. That motivates us to do what God says. <clears throat> he wants you and me to grapple <clears throat> with these essential issues of our hearts, attitudes of obedience, of gratitude, of worship, focusing on who God is and who he's, uh, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Whatever it may involve, we do what he wants us to do. And if your heart's been awakened, if it's been enlivened by the grace of God, you know the law didn't do that. It might have convicted you and showed you you needed help, you needed deliverance, but it's the grace of God, the gospel, that gives us life. And it's those who are in the new covenant that know the Lord, that love the Lord, and out of that loving him, truly serve the Lord. Your good works can't make you acceptable to God. They never will. But Jesus has already done everything that's necessary, full atonement he's made. And so your response, what is it? It's to trust him in life, in death, in resurrection, in every aspect. We trust him because he's led the way. He is the author and the finisher, perfecter, per, uh, perfecter of our faith. And let me just say again, if you're not a Christian this evening, why not? What is there that you have that is so wonderful and so precious and so uh, fulfilling that it's worth Facing a God who's a consuming fire that will terrify you to your very core. Is there anything, whatever you have, it's going to be shaken, which means it's going to be eliminated. You can't hold on to it. But see, he promises a kingdom that will never be shaken. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. By faith, he says, come, receive the promises of a kingdom that can never be shaken. It's a matter of trusting him, not yourself. Well, I don't know that I can come. You don't need to know if you can come. You just need to believe that he will come to you if you receive him. Not about you. Not about how much you, how much faith you have. It's whether or not you understand and believe God's faithful to his promise. By faith you receive him. By faith you set your heart on who God is for you in Jesus Christ. You pay attention to him who's speaking you're grateful to him for all he's done 
and all He's promised to do. And then you begin to worship Him with all your heart. This is the word of the Lord to us tonight.